I always wanted to create something quite small. Actually, I'm not dreaming about building an empire because for me, jewelry is a way of expression as sculpture, as painting, as haute couture, when you're not dreaming for something huge. Because as I said, I'm not a businessman. I love to dream and I just love to create. So I want to keep it the most naive way as possible. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour to the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. One of my favorite exhibitions in recent years was the show Jewelry, The Body Transformed that ran at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York in 2018. Encompassing everything from pre-Columbian headdresses and Egyptian sandals made from gold and found on a mummy's feet, to a circa 1900 pendant made to look like a moth, the show reminded visitors about the enormous possibilities and universality of the art form. On one of the walls at the entrance to the exhibition, it read, Jewelry is the world's oldest art form, predating cave paintings by tens of thousands of years. Throughout history and across cultures, it has served to extend and amplify the human body, accentuating, enhancing, distorting, and transforming it. While the great houses of jewelry do incredible work, sometimes a bit of the personal side of things can feel lost. My guests today are part of a new generation of jewelry designers that pour a little bit of themselves into every ring, every necklace, every earring. There are thousands of independent designers out there, so I enlisted the help of the most knowledgeable guy I know to guide me along the way, Levi Higgs. As the head of archives and brand heritage for David Webb in New York, as well as a jewelry influencer on Instagram, if there ever was one, I asked him to select two rising stars in his world that can shed some light on this incredible field. We'll meet Jean Prunus, a New Yorker who pulls her inspiration from the ancient world and combines it with some distinctly 20th century cosmopolitan glamour, and Emmanuel Tarpin, an award-winning French wonderkind who creates one-of-a-kind high jewelry inspired by nature. But first, I catch up with Levi from his home in uptown New York to chat about the next generation of collectors, breaking gender stereotypes, and why these two incredible designers we'll meet today represent the best of what's to come. So I I know you as the as a friend and the head of archives and brand heritage at David Webb, but tell me a little bit about where your interest in jewelry kind of first started. Yeah, sure. I you know, it's it's always like the fraught question you don't want to be asked about like where did it all begin? But I think um and everyone I know in the jewelry world will always say, oh, it's a childhood fascination. It's things that I collected when I was young. And for me, I had this little cabinet of curiosities, literally, that were tiny little poly pockets or glass dice or these miniature things that were jewel-like. And, um, you know, there's sort of bullet points throughout my life of like going antiquing with my aunt and then finally when I got to college I was studying art history. I was really into um, Victorian genre scenes which you really are looking at like the objects in the room and kind of dissecting the meaning of these things um, and maybe in a moralistic way. Through that I discovered like the ability to study decorative arts um, and jewelry is just kind of the ultimate decorative art. It doesn't necessarily have a function or a purpose in the way that like a textile or a vase or a chair does. Um, so after I after I studied art history um, in undergrad, I went to a master's program um, in New York at Parsons that's taught in conjunction with the Cooper Hewitt, and I focus specifically on jewelry history. Uh, 
And yeah, it's just always been like a fascinating world to kind of dive deep into. And I guess, you know, for someone who has a, a, a degree in, in the history of jewelry, um, what would you say is like a, a misconception that people might have, you know, as just casual observers versus someone who's studied it from a, a long historical view? Maybe that it's frivolous. I mean, it sounds very niched and very like, oh my gosh, what, you know, what good are you putting into the world with that? But it's quite a, a dissection of like social history and and context beyond any what, what, what you would normally think of as like, uh, I don't know, a useless piece of, of, of object. But um, jewelry really does kind of function at all these different levels throughout society it can be at the highest level it can be a very common thing everyone has wedding rings or you know things that are important to them in that regard um so there's always a touch point with someone which is nice and like you know today when we talk about fashion and you know i would say there was a period where you know, people were talking about how formal wear is kind of going away and, and people are, are dressing up less. But at the same time, it seems like jewelry is going through another phase. And, you know, is jewelry still important today in the culture, you think? Oh, absolutely. I think it's such a way that at least a lot of the people I know really demarcate themselves that way of, of like who they collect, what they collect, how they wear it, where they wear it. Sometimes you're, you know, meeting a friend at a, a dive bar and they're wearing like a very expensive piece of jewelry and you're like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? But that's that's how they express themselves and can kind of put out there maybe subtly what, what they're all about or aligning themselves with or their aesthetic. And today, do you have your own cabinet of curiosities? Like, what what are you collecting? Ooh, good question. I it, it's funny you ask that in the, in a cabinet of curiosity way because I'm actually having a custom jewelry box built right now. I don't have a great jewelry box situation currently, but I'm trying to fix that. Um, I collect a lot of ancient coins, and then I have jewelry made out of those ancient coins. I love anything from this store in LA called August. Um, I have a Charles Laloma ring that I love. I have a vintage Van Cleef Zodiac pendant from the 70s that I hunted for for a long time and really had to like manifest it coming out of the woodwork for me because they're very hard to find. Um, so quite a, quite a few, a good, a, a good amount, a good collection that's budding. And you're part of an organization called GemX. Can you explain uh, what that is and, and what you guys do? Sure, yeah. GemX is a social club that is firmly uh, based in jewelry. It has all sorts of different members. It has jewelers, it has historians, it has collectors, um, students, anyone can be a member. And we do a lot of wonderful outings and events, um, whether it's going through a tour at a museum with a curator to see the jewelry collection, or we're having an event at Jean Prunus's apartment and getting to see a kind of an exclusive moment with her new work. Um, it's just a way for people who are maybe a little bit younger, maybe new to the industry uh, to once again go behind a, a velvet rope and kind of have amazing access to this world that might seem intimidating. And so when you guys are, are together, um, you know, for some sort of social event, like what do young, young jewelry collectors and people in the industry talk about? Like what's important to to you guys? Because, you know, jewelry is something that, a lot of people interact with, but only a select few are kind of 
connoisseurs in a way that really is on another level. And so I'm curious, like what this new generation kind of uh, what's important to you guys? It's a great question. It's a lot of show and tell. It's a lot of, ooh, show me your ring. Show me your pendant. Oh, pull it out. I want to see it. So there's the lovely moment of like getting to peacock a little bit with your peers. And um, yeah, it's really fun to be able to tell the like harrowing stories of, oh, I thought I had lost it, but I found it. Here it is. It was you know in the drawer forever and I finally pulled it out. Or, or me telling the story of finally getting my Van Cleef pendant uh, from from the place that I got it. I don't want to divulge too much, but there was a harrowing story about how it came to be. And those, you know, it's fun to share and, and kind of um, swap war stories, if you will. Uh, and, you know, there's also a lot of discussion uh, in fashion and elsewhere about this idea of, like, gender-neutral anything, right? And, and jewelry kind of following suit. Um, how do you kind of see this evolving Um uh, in, in the future like where do you see sort of jewelry and specifically men and jewelry and women with different types of jewelry kind of coming together because it's almost like men can then start wearing lots of things that used to be considered for women but for women <laughs> unless they're wearing cufflinks um which they can but it's more specific um where do you see that kind of going well, I'm very happy that I'm talking to you, who is a um, brooch convert, I think. Yes, I could say no, that that's very, very safe to say, yes. Very confidently. Um, look, I think throughout history, like, men were always the ones that were the most bejeweled, just in, just in the sense of, like, the royals, the kings, the maharajas, like, all those people were kind of festooning themselves with jewelry to denote their power, and you didn't really have the same level of, like, oh, jewelry's for women until, I, I don't know, the 18th century, 19th century? Like, when did those norms even begin? I couldn't I couldn't tell you. I should be able to tell you probably, but I couldn't pinpoint it exactly right now. Um, so yeah, in today's world of gender-neutral everything, I think if if Harry Styles wants to wear a, a pearl necklace, look what he's galvanized. You know, they're everywhere now on guys. Um I think it's just about confidence and styling, honestly. I, I don't want to get too like um, pointed about it. I, I think anyone can wear any sort of jewel they want. Uh, yeah, women can wear cufflinks. That would look very chic. That's a very like Marlena Dietrich sort of look. And if you could kind of bring a bunch of jewelry executives from different major houses together and sort of have them understand something about like this next generation of collectors and critics and this younger generation um what would you say what would you tell them what would you want that thing to be hmm. i wish that larger companies wouldn't focus so much on the like um fashion cycles like you know you you see um paris fashion week new york fashion week like everyone has these kind of um bullet points in the year that they have to hit with new collections and i don't think jewelry functions necessarily in that same way like yes come out with a new collection but it doesn't have to be every season it could be every two years three years um because jewelry can sit around longer than fashion sells off the rack you know mm -hmm. um it it doesn't have the same like um quick turnaround necessarily um and i i i think it's also important for larger companies to get behind 
popular and upcoming designers like look and maybe dior is a bad example but dior has victoire de castellan like they've really latched on to a great jewelry designer who has kind of created a um indelible vocabulary for them that's very specific to how they make jewelry now and have done for a while um lv has francesca like she's amazing she does great work for them um and you can even look at Tiffany now, how they've like revived Schlumberger so much. They're really kind of latching onto that. And that's that's what was happening in the 50s and 60s when Schlumberger was around and alive and working for them. So to be a big company and have uh, a name attached and a designer's point of view, I think it helps everyone. I think it, it obviously raises the profile of that designer. It makes the company have a specific design sensibility. I don't know. I think other bigger brands could do that a little more. And, you know, today we're going to be speaking with two different designers uh, with two very different points of view from very different backgrounds, um, both of them gaining attention in their own light. Um, and, and one being Emmanuel Tarpin. Can you explain a little bit about how you first learned about his work and, and what you think makes him stand out? Sure. Yeah, I I was trying to remember how long I've actually known Emmanuel, and I feel like it's been quite a while. He came into my orbit when he first de debuted a piece at Christie's. He had like geranium leaf earrings that were being sold at Christie's. And um, it was the first time I'd heard his name, first time I'd seen his work. And I think he either I reached out to him or he reached out to me. Truly cannot remember, but we just sort of uh, were in touch and became good friends. And I've watched him you know, do quite a few different things throughout his career. And I think he's really impressive um, in how like tightly he's controlled his aesthetic and sort of his um, aura. And he's such a nice person, very humble, uh, love him to death. So very glad you're talking to him. And so when you're, you know, you're, you're, I would consider you, you to be the, the most jewelry aficionado of all aficionados that I know. So like, oh, wow. what do you see in his work necessarily that you're like, wow, he's really good from like a technical point of view? Yeah, he has a he has a great sort of playfulness um, with the nature theme. It's not all just uh, hyper naturalistic creations of of a flower or a leaf or something. While he does do that, he'll he'll put like dewdrops on something that are made with certain gemstones. I think there was just a butterfly brooch on Instagram that had these beautiful cabochon stones all over the wings that aren't necessarily true to life how a butterfly would have well maybe it would have dewdrops on its wings i don't know but then there it is captured in this like perfect still moment um as a jewel and i'm i am sadly not a jeweler i don't know like all these technical sort of um specifications of how he's working but i do think there's a lot of uh technical innovation that he can work with with his workshops is there like an, an analog do you think to emmanuel like a historical analog. Right. I think there's a I think there's a long tradition of people like him who have these like very tightly controlled ateliers where he can invite clients in and kind of debut these one of a kind pieces. He's not producing six hundred pieces a year. He's got this very nice way to unveil things for people. And I think that's kind of a an important thing that he's able to do, uh, you know, in his beautiful apartment in Paris. And, you know, I'm sure he'll tell you all about it, but that's exactly how he works is kind of connecting one-on-one -on -one with clients. And that's kind of the best way that people, um, that jewelers these days are like operating. Um, and the, the other person we're talking to is uh, uh, Jean Prunus. Uh, tell me about her because she, uh, 
I, you know, I think there's definitely like a, a kind of like a, an antiquities vibe to her work. Like, tell me what you know about her. Totally. She's very inspired by, um, yes, antiquities, but also like personal mythology that she has. She has a lot of connections to New York. Um, I've had an evening in her beautiful uh, West Village apartment where she talks a lot about her grandparents and her family history and like a nightclub that was um, in New York in the 40s and 50s. And so she'll she'll take these like moments from her life and kind of expound around them with with jewelry um so it's it's this nice cross current of like yes there are a lot of jewelers who maybe look at antiquity or the past but she's doing that through her own personal life lens and it makes it so much more impactful um i love the project she did with like a a house she had this custom dollhouse built um it's a great story and the the object itself of the house with the jewelry sort of in the houses as people and persona it was fascinating she, she did a great job with it you know there's a lot of designers out there especially today with uh you know instagram and people have access to kind of anything that they would want and what do you what kind of qualities do you see in both gene and emmanuel that are sort of unique for their generation if you will hmm I guess I sort of said it with Jean, but I think I think they're both able to work within the context of jewelry history, but bring their own personal auras to their work. Like that is what is making someone come back to these new upstart jewelers. It's it's this um, specificity that they have that is like enticing someone to come and want to invest in their work as kind of a new name on the scene and you know i say new they're they're very established jewelers at this point but they're they're also um able to bring a unique perspective to what they do where do you see kind of jewelry evolving like do you think that we're still in even in the future maybe in the next 10 20 years that do you see the styles are are rapidly changing or are we actually kind of regressing in a way or is is it going to be more about the handmade like where do you see i i think um at least something i crave and i like seeing and i feel like i've seen it more and more recently is jewelry that's narrative um i have a, a brooch that i commissioned for my 30th birthday by david michael jewels and it's extremely narrative it has all these sort of hidden things that i wanted put in there and that symbolized things in my life and you know whatever it's it was a very heavily symbolic piece to me and i see a lot of jewelers these days referencing things or bringing in imagery or stones that mean certain things so like there's a lot of symbolism that's involved with jewelry these days and i think that's nice it's not just sort of ooh a sleek minimalist bangle you know which which is also great don't get me wrong but i just like seeing that kind of um heavily laden narrative in jewelry. I think it I think it can add a nice layer to uh something that someone's inevitably going to ask about, right? Like if you're wearing a very stunning jewel and you're like, "Oh, tell me more about that." Like there's a lot to say then. There's a lot to reveal about yourself in that moment. And I think that's really special. First up, Emmanuel Tarpan. Barely in his 30s, Emmanuel skyrocketed to the scene when he created his own atelier for hot jewelry in 2018, after cutting his teeth at Van Cleef & Arpels. In 2019, he won Breakthrough Designer of the Year from the magazine Town & Country. The New York Times called him a star in the high jewelry firmament. 
and he's collaborated with the ultra-exclusive watch brand, MBNF. Even Rihanna has worn a pair of his epic earrings. I caught up with the designer from his home in Paris to discuss how his love of sculpture and the natural world has created meaningful and oh-so-delicate works, only about 30 to 35 a year, depicting everything from a jellyfish with tentacles made with sparkling diamonds to geranium leaf earrings sculpted in anodized aluminum and gold. And, you know, I, I, I read that your parents sort of saw you hoarding modeling clay as a child and sort of encouraged you to take classes in sculpture. Is that true? So that is absolutely true. Um, when I was a kid, I used to steal modeling clay at school oh. uh, to create like very tiny and small sculpture uh, to create like small mushrooms or nature inspired things. And um, my mother noticed and uh, she proposed me like to join like a sculpture sessions or just to try and uh, of course i was very excited about it because i was really young and that's how actually it started how and old I, you? Pr- I started sculpture i was maybe eight or seven. Oh wow that's very young that's very young for a kid to yeah, be yeah, interested yeah. in sculpture and so how long did you do that for so i practiced sculpture during 13 14 years oh wow okay so yeah it always have been a, a big passion it was a video only on clay and then how did you transition from that to jewelry? What was that, that sort of journey like? So uh, first it started with sculpture, as we just talked about. But also I always had a passion for gemstones. Uh, so still at my parents' place, I have a big collection of rough gemstones. Mm. So that's quite funny. And uh, I used to go with my dad uh, in the mountains to look at some rough quartz, amethyst mm. and all of that. So I would say that's how it started, actually. And so uh, did your parents sort of encourage, I mean, it sounds like they encouraged this, the sculpture, but were they excited about the jewelry part? Like, how did you decide what to do? I mean, they were very curious uh, and they encouraged me for sure, but they didn't know really about it. Uh, My mother loves jewelry, but she doesn't wear that much jewelry. Mm. But my parents are both very curious and they love to discover. And so they were very open-minded. And so they were very surprised, but at the same time, they pushed me to explore this new passion. And so where did you train? I heard that you sort of were, you were doing a little, you were sort of apprenticing at, at Van Cleef, I think. So yeah, I studied in uh, the French Alps first, then I studied in Geneva in the High School of Art and Design. And then uh, I worked in a jewelry workshop in Paris, working for high jewelry for Van Cleef and Opels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was an incredible experience uh, because for me, when I have a passion, I want to know everything about it uh, from the first inspiration to the final piece when it's about jewelry. And so it was really essential for me to work in a jewelry workshop first to understand all the different craftsmanship, the techniques. Uh, and so that's how I started. And it was the best because I was in a high jewelry workshop. So it was really precise. And I was working with much older jewelers than me. And so the best way to learn, I would say. And so uh, how long were you sort of apprenticing for before you started on your own? So I worked uh, in the hydrogen atelier during approximately four years before starting my brand. Uh, Because as I said, it was amazing to learn about all these different techniques. But also it was a bit frustrating to not creating my 
own pieces. And uh, always during lunchtime, I was trying to do my few my few sculpture works during wax carving, or trying just experiment new materials. Always during the the little lunch break. And when you when you decided to go out on your own, was that like a difficult decision for you? Um, I'm someone who can't stay still, actually. So I love to experiment. I love always to evolve. Uh, the worst for me is to get bored. Mm -hmm. So I always love to try, even when it's risky, in a way. Um, but I just needed it at that time. I, I wanted to take that risk to explore uh, my creativity, what I wanted to propose. Uh, so it was quite natural and very spontaneous. And that's always the way I act. And so, like, what did you do? What is what does a young jewelry designer do when you create? Did you create a collection at first, or how did you? I actually never created a collection. I always work on one of a kind pieces, and so I'm really very inspired by nature. But it's, I never show like through collections. Uh, so I prefer to create one by one pieces this way. That's it. I don't and want to feel stuck. I just want to keep the most freedom as possible. And so, like, who is your first client? Who is willing to say, like, your very first pair of earrings? That sort of, how did that happen? So, actually, my really first uh, piece, so this pair of earrings, has been sold at Christie's in New York. So that's oh, how that it was started. your first ever. That yeah, was your first exactly. That sale. was really my first. Oh wow, wow, that's yeah. th that's very special. I mean, are you like, can you? Because tell me the story about how that happened. So I knew some people uh, at Christie's Geneva. And when I started my brand, I had a lot of ideas about creating pieces, but I'm definitely not a businessman. And I didn't know all the jewelry clients, high jewelry clients. It's such a special market. And I, want, I wanted at that time just to ask for advices from the Christie's team. And I, I was coming to New York at that time and I just asked for an appointment and I show them my first pair and they proposed me to put it in auction for the Christmas sale in New York. So I was a bit terrified, but at the same time, I was very impressed and very honored. And so that's how it started. And uh, the piece has been sold and very well. Uh, and I've been very happy of it. And that's how my name started to spread out a bit. You know, if you had to explain to somebody like a, a prospective client, a new client, who's never seen your work before and you, you haven't been able to show them anything. And, and they said, well, what, what is your jewelry like? Um, how do you, how do you explain your own work to somebody? So I think it's all about your own interpretation or your own sensitivity. But first, you know, most of my pieces are very inspired by nature, but also I'm not, um, I don't do only nature inspired pieces. I love to explore and also my clients can be very inspiring in that way. Mm. Uh, but I would say my work is really focused about contrast. Uh, for example, contrast of tex texture. Um, I love to work on the sparkle of the stones and the math of the metal. And uh, the te texture, I think it's really essential because a piece of jewelry is... Uh, has to be something very sensitive and very sensual in a way because it's directly linked also to the body. Mm. Um, I also work, love to work on contrast of colors. Uh, I think that's... I also love to try new materials, for example, aluminum, titanium, gold, but also rock crystal, bronze. 
um, experimenting is a big thing for me. So mm-hmm. I love to have a new story to tell in each new pieces. And how do you, so how would you explain your creative process from, how many pieces do you make a year about? Uh, it's always changing, but I would say approximately like 30. Okay. And so uh, 30 actually sounds like a lot because I mean, you know, if you're, you're the one doing it. So that's, <laughs> that's a lot of designs. Um, what is your creative process from, from beginning to end? So first I would say, um, I'm traveling a lot. Uh, that's part of my, my inspiration. I always travel a lot. And I love to live dif- a lot of experiences, meeting new culture, new people. Uh, for example, four months ago, I was in Mexico to visit the opal mines, to meet the miners, to understand the mine to market, uh, the human condition about the environment as well. And I will be in Colombia beginning of August. Uh, to visit the emerald mines. So all of that is very inspiring because there is always a story behind a piece. Mm. Um, so when I start, I so I have an inspiration. Everything starts with some sketches. Uh, I always have like a notebook and a pencil with me to, to do quick, quick sketches. Um, then I will, quite often I will do uh, wax carving because I, I still love to keep these sculptural aspects of jewelry. Uh, and I need to have very quickly this 3D vision of it. Uh, then I will talk with the jewelers. We'll start by creating a maquette. Then I will find also the stones because I chose all the stones myself. Um, and then that's how that's how it goes. When you're when you're looking at you know obviously Rihanna was a, a client of yours and wore wore a piece of yours and that was. Um, seem to be something that will always be mentioned in a biography of yours. Um, with your clients, are do they tend to be younger as well? I mean, do, or are your clients uh, sort of, you know, all different ages? For for high jewelry, or do you find your clients younger and they might be, uh, you know, more, feel more comfortable with your designs because they are also younger? I'm just curious. So um, I have young clients, but I would say it's they are not only like young. I have all different age, ages mm. uh, of clients. Also, I have a lot of uh, men as clients, not only women uh, from different countries. So it's quite mixed, mm. I would say, and I love that. And for the younger clients, what do they what do they look for that might be different from an older generation? <laughs> Uh, so I don't know if it's really focused to young, but uh, maybe the, the younger people are more looking for something unique, one of a kind. Mm. Because as I said, I do only one of a kind pieces, even the smallest one, because I believe that we are all unique and we all want something that nobody has. Mm. I think that's something very, really rare now. Um, and I love to make a jewelry piece special for them. So that's a big thing. And so have you ever been, uh, you know, high jewelry is a very specific world and Mm -hmm. very, you know, very special world. But have you ever been tempted to, you know, to create pieces that are more democratically priced that are, you know, made in multiples, obviously? So um, I truly never really thought about it uh, because when I design something, it's more about following my inspiration. Uh, so I'm not 
thinking really about the price. Uh, what the most important for me is more like to do something unique and one of a kind. Mm. Uh, then it can be very different. Sometimes I do much easier pieces, more simple, more pure. Uh, and sometimes it can be something like nature inspired with a lot of gemstones. So I'm I'm not stuck. But I don't think the price is not something I start with when I design the piece. And I guess if I were to ask you, how would you describe sort of the culture of jewelry today? You know, what is the mood in terms of like, what gets your clients excited when they walk in the door, you know, that maybe was different 10 years ago? I think now it's really... I mean, luxury, it's not only jewelry, luxury in general. It's we focus about marketing, uh, communication, and we forget the product itself at the end. And me, I'm really defending the fact that jewelry is an art, as I said, and uh, I love to give emotions through my pieces. Uh, and I want every piece to be like an experience. And I... And I I think that's such a gift and I feel very lucky to live that every day. And uh, for example, sometimes when I deliver a piece, a client can cry because it means so much for him or her. And I think that's the best gift ever because for me, luxury is really here to create something special for someone special. And it's not about, I'm really about, about marketing. I don't have any PR team or whatever. And I love to share about my work. I love to explain uh, because it's a passion, but still I want to focus more about the creativity than the market itself. For me, jewelry is not a market. For me, jewelry is an art. So it's just something different. I think there is different kind of jewelry, uh, and I, I think that's, that's good. There is jewelry for everyone, and that's it. And I guess my last question would be, do you feel, as a young person in high jewelry, do you feel welcomed? and accepted by the high jewelry world? Or is it kind of difficult to be, you know, a young person without PR, kind of doing his own thing, you know, pushing what you do as art as an art form? Actually, I don't think you have to feel welcome in the high jewelry world because, as I said, there are so many different kinds of jewelry. You have the big brands, you have independent jewelers. Uh, there's so many so much creativity and so many different styles. So I think you don't have to feel welcome. You just have to follow your own uh, vibes, your own emotions. And so that's what I do. Of course, I'm very curious and I'm very open to, to talk and to meet people, even other designer in jewelry. But I'm just continuing my way. And, uh, and that's it. I don't need to feel welcomed or not. My next guest is Jean Prunas, whose fine jewelry line is based in New York and has a clear identity of wearable, fashionable, and soulful pieces that echo the ancient world. But these aren't simply nostalgic reproductions. Instead, the coolest ice entrepreneur creates pieces that appear universally chic. And her work has struck a chord with all of the right people. She's collaborated with the likes of Gucci and the booming fashion brand, Bodhi. I caught up with Jean from her Manhattan Atelier to talk about her views on sourcing the right stones, where the ideas for her pieces come from, some of which look like they were pilfered by a time traveler with amazing taste, and what she and her generation bring to the world of jewelry that's truly unique. Did you grow up in New York? 
No, actually, and I was listening um, to your other podcast. I'm from Long Island. Oh, like okay. <laughs> we're New Yorkers. We don't. We don't. Yeah, we're New Yorkers. We yeah, we don't say we don't we're say the dirty Islanders, Long Island word. Um, right. <laughs> and so, so you grew up on Long Island, but your your yeah. your family is you know from here from from the city, and it's a kind of right. a big part of your of your life now. Is this connection? Absolutely. To that. Yeah, New York is such a melting pot of inspiration for me and my great-grandparents came over to new york from on my dad's side from greece in like the 20s or 10s so yeah that's when the prunus family really started their roots in the city and my mom's side's also new york so we're very rooted here in the state and it's amazing <laughs> and your grandfather ran a nightclub if i'm not mistaken tell me a little yes. bit about that Yes, the uh, Versailles. It was a supper club, cabaret club of sorts that was in Midtown, which is now having a renaissance, which is amazing. Um, that's where our studio is located. But the Versailles was located right across from the Waldorf Astoria and had its kind of reign from the 30s to the 50s. It was a beautiful kind of restaurant full of splendor all of like the silverware was silver porcelain plates hand gouache menus and then the cherry on top was like the entertainment um so my great-grandfather Otto Prunus kind of worked on a contract with Edith Piaf for her first U.S. kind of residency um yeah and so so your grandfather had uh, this nightclub, but he was also somewhat of a bibliophile in terms of. So it was my great grandfather. Your great grandfather. Oh, yeah. sorry, great grandfather had the nightclub. I thought that yeah. you were a little bit young for your yeah, grandfather. Exactly. Um, your great grandfather <laughs> no. had the nightclub, but your grandfather yeah. had a book collection. If that's yeah, know. so he um, really loved his Greek heritage um, and had an incredible library on of books about you know predominantly ancient greek architecture culture um literature so growing up when i'd visit him because they lived in florida later in their life they retired there so i'd go with my parents to visit um throughout my childhood i'd spend hours with him in his library going through these books which have really created prunus the brand that the jewelry line um if it weren't for those books i mean probably find another way to it but there's so many pieces that i've designed that are really kind of pulled out from these books um so lots of yeah artistic books I guess, <laughs> how many books are in culture. this uh in this library of this collection well I mean, he had hundreds and hundreds oh, wow. of books, and what I have kept, uh, I mean, fills my apartment. So, yeah. <laughs> amazing. And so, how did you first, uh, you know, decide to 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 go into jewelry? Like, what was that that journey like for you? Um, it was a natural progression because I didn't initially go to school for jewelry. I went actually for biology. That was. Mm -hmm. A uh, really big interest of mine at that part of my life, um, but I was always interested in working with my hands, which lab sciences kind of speak to in a way. Um, but there was this creative element that I always had enjoyed working with. It wasn't until about halfway through college where I was really like, I love like the sculpture classes I was taking, and I decided to kind of 
take a class one summer in ancient metalsmithing, which is so niche, but it really <laughs> ticked a box for me and clicked. So I'm so happy. I so resonated with those techniques. Mm. Um, Were the ancient techniques sort of different from what we would consider now to be jewelry yeah, making definitely. techniques? I mean, they're still deeply used today. Mm. And um, one of my things is really preserving th those techniques in our line now. Um, but a lot of them are very, they're highly labor intensive. So of course, with, you know, the birth of technology, so many things have kind of been lost to that. Um, so there are certain skills like granulation and chain making and just like full on hand fabrication from say sheet or wire, which is like the DNA of all jewelry. Um, though, that's kind of what I, I was taught in those classes in the summers um, that we use to this day and also use modern jewelry techniques as well. But it's all about, yeah, balance. And is there, uh, so how did you, so you took this class and then you decided like, did you start selling pieces first before you launched into it? How Not at first. So I took the class, started to really learn about ancient jewelry while taking the class, it was starting to really kind of ring a bell of this past I had with my grandfather, because he had passed at this point, um, remembering these pieces that he'd show me in the books and how it really just came together. It was felt like a really natural, familial connection in a way, uh, a great way to like connect with my heritage. And then this idea of materiality of 22 karat, which I finally found my way to after I kind of honed my skills a bit more because it's not, not, not the cheapest of material by any means. So um, the material is also what I really fell in love with. 22 karat is just like this incredible lustrous butter of a metal. And I can't believe how, you know, in a way recyclable it is and how, tactile it there's just a wealth of technique in this one metal which is incredible and how is your studio set up today you know do you are you still making everything yourself or do you work no with the team? i wish i love <laughs> making so it's it's such a treat too when i do but now i mean we're entirely committed to making everything in new york um, so we're here in the jewelry district on 48th street and we have a studio in-house where we have a couple of jewelers, um, Devin and Elizabeth. And then sometimes I dabble these days, um, for more like prototyping or one of a kinds. Mm -hmm. And then we work with a ton of different artisans in the jewelry district who help us anywhere from setting to fabrication to engraving and lapidary so it's an incredible district here that we're really dedicated to preserving and, and you know when i interview people in the jewelry world i mean one thing that i'm always fascinated with is the sort of like selection of stones and how these work together and i think i read somewhere where you know you kind of try to find stones that maybe you know, work with this sort of, uh, you know, antiquities vibe that you have going on. Can you tell me a little bit about how you source these stones and what you kind of look for them, look for in yeah. them? Yeah, absolutely. So when I first started, I was pretty, I was pretty strict. I would only work with stones that were seen 
in antiquity. So that leaves you to like carnelian, lapis, emerald, garnet. I mean, just to name a few, sapphire. Mm. Um, and then I evolved. <laughs> um, and now we kind of work with everything, all of those included, diamond, tourmaline, turquoise. But my selection of stones is really um, kind of looking at the stone as like a micro painting from earth that was naturally formed. And I really look for inclusions. Um, I think inclusions are some of the most magical things that a stone can carry. So what I mean by that is when you look at clear stones that are like almost like glass to me, I just prefer the character of the marks inside of the stones. Um, it's almost like a bit of a poem in there. Um, it's about the palette too. I love kind of monotone, neutral colors. I'm inspired by, you know, from nature, going on hikes and seeing how like the moss of the tree, you know, connects with the, say, the brown of the bark and how that can kind of speak to an earring in a way. So really drawing from nature for a lot of the palettes. And I'm, I'm curious, like what you're, you know, in the industry as being a younger voice, you know, in a very crowded competitive field, you know, what do you think you understand perhaps that maybe an older generation doesn't understand um, or something that you kind of approach style and, and jewelry and fashion and, and the cult, you know, the culture of style that you think, you know, is unique to maybe your generation. I have so much to learn from the older generation at the same time, but yeah, I think the way I approach design or I, I try to is like, there's a simplicity to it. It, it can be easy. It doesn't, uh, an expensive ring doesn't have to mean you're going out on the town. It can be part of your everyday. And there's a casualness. I think that in general, of course, this gener my generation has brought to, to culture, right? I think everything became so casual, which I don't necessarily lean into so much where I'd wear like a tracksuit to... <laughs> dinner but um i think there's something there with how you can enjoy your objects and your say valuable possessions on a more daily basis um and take away the seriousness of it and what do you th what are your thoughts about currently about um you know sticking with the system or the fashion calendar um, I think that's something that a lot of people in the creative world, whether they're working in design or architecture, et cetera, you know, some people said, oh, do we really need to revolve our entire life around uh, trade shows or fashion weeks or seasons per, per se? Like, what is your current thinking on that? I mean, I think it's unnecessary. I think it should be based off of like a designer's most intuitive sense. <laughs> Of course, there's different, you know, so many different aspects of this. But for me, I try to pull away from it. And sometimes that hurts, you know, because I don't have the necessary assets when, say, someone has budgets to buy. But I feel that it's more important for me to just make sure that everything lines up with my vision and... 
rather than putting something out there that's kind of, I don't know, half-assed. Like, I, it just doesn't feel good to do that because I have done that now where, you know, I put out, say, earrings that I know might do well because it kind of is an algorithm. And then, then now I look back and I'm like, okay, we are cutting those out of the line because why did I try to fill this void when I should have just been nourishing it to create something you know different and more exciting and more akin to our clients and and antiquity or something you know there's this like homogenization and commercial commercialization that we're faced with i think as designers um that it's really important to kind of push away from because i think it can take anyone over which I think calendars feed into. Yeah. GQ did a story that included you uh, titled Enter the Men's Jewelry Renaissance. Do you think we're in a, a renaissance for men's jewelry? It's grown. I mean, especially with the specific pieces. We've always had a strong male business for, say, wedding rings or bands. Um, but now we're seeing men really like look into more colored stone pieces or pearls, um, chains, I mean, in a more, in a different approach, because our chains aren't like, you know, sorry, I guess chains have been a men's piece for eternity, but ours are a little different in that they're, I mean, we have um, this really like ornamented clasp that some have diamonds in them, some are just very textured and in their gold surface. So, different from day-to-day pieces that I'd say have been historically popular with men. But then, you know, going back to like my design inspiration, Greco-Roman jewelry, men were covered in jewels. So a lot of the pieces that I do kind of reference in the line were initially men's pieces. So it's nice to see that kind of come full circle. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really consider the line to be unisex. I've never really gendered it. it's for yeah, whoever clicks. <laughs> <laughs> and do you make brooches with it? Of course, we make um, lapel pins. Well, I mean they're not lapel pins, but they're um, they're pins. So we did for the Bodhi collaboration a little three piece set. One is a stick pin, a ring, and a pair of studs. So they all reference the buttons that we designed for for the shirts. Um, yeah. Well, you know, the Grand Tourist loves to collect uh, brooches. I'm always, I'm always curious oh. who's making them. It's quite hard. It's kind of hard to find uh, yeah. brooches for men that are not uh, total we peacocking, do, if you know what I mean. Right. Yeah. We do a lot of custom, so. Oh, okay. Yeah. Good to know. We'll talk after the interview. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you to Levi Higgs, Emmanuel Tarpan, and Gene Prunis for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, don't forget to visit our new website and sign up for our newsletter, The Grand Tourist Curator, at thegrandtourist.net. And follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. (laughs) 